Uh, now, um, just uh, before we get underway, for the last couple of weeks, uh, what's been happening is I've been giving a sort of more thematic sermon series than perhaps normal, uh, which I've called the all-important I. And so just for those of you who perhaps weren't around the last, what, maybe one or both of the last two weeks, let me just give a very quick recap before we get into thinking about that passage in Titus chapter 2. So um, what have I said so far? I've said that the, the mess uh, that we uh, find ourselves in that we, is that we, uh, our church, our culture, so often says me, me, myself, I, I am the all-important I. So much of the mess in our world, it stems from our radical individualism. Uh, and then I've talked a bit about the model to get us out of the mess. Uh, and that is the all-important I of I for integrity. And we've been seeing, particularly over the last couple of weeks, how William Wilberforce, the politician who campaigned for the abolition of the slave trade and who worshipped in this very church 200-odd years ago, how he is a great model of integrity. Let me, let me try and explain what I mean by that. Uh, he is someone, when you read about him, when you discover him, he had an integrated life. He had an integrated life where there wasn't some sort of giant gap between his, who he was in public and then who he was in private. There wasn't a giant gap between what he professed with his lips and what he practiced in his life. Uh, but not only did he have an integrated life, he also had an integrated discipleship. By that, I mean his discipleship wasn't lopsided, but it was growing in an integrated way where his thinking about Jesus, his, his feelings for Jesus, and his actions as a follower of Jesus, they were all growing together in an integrated way and as part of a community of believers here at HTC. And then he had an integrated mission. Uh, and by that I mean he had an integrated mission. He didn't divorce evangelism from social action, but he saw the two as very much going hand in hand as he looked out into the world. As we go out into the world, evangelism and social action side by side. And then finally, he had an integrated vision. Uh, and by that I mean that he didn't just sort of think, well, I'm just looking at it in the present. I'm just saying, let's just focus on the here and now. But he, what he did instead was he, he looked at the future and he looked to live now in the light of eternity, recognizing that one day he will be accountable to God for how he lived. But then I finished by saying, if we left it there and just said, well, you know, Wilberforce is this great model of integrity, go and do likewise. If that's where we left it, it would be a disaster because it would be this heavy weight to bear. It would just be this sort of moral pressure that we would all sink under. And Wilberforce would be the first to say, don't look at me, don't, don't look at me, but actually set your heart, set your mind, set your affections on Jesus Christ. He is the all-important one. And set your affections on things above. Have a big vision of Jesus, and then we will increasingly be enabled by Jesus to more and more be those people of integrity. So that's where we've got to so far. That's sort of a little recap for you. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll go on from there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please would you help me as I speak now? And Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, would you please help each one of us? Each one of us, help us in every way to make the teaching about you, our Savior, attractive. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, this week, uh, an outstretched hand has been dominating the media, hasn't it? Will Smith's hand in his altercation with Chris Rock at the Oscars. But today, I want you to picture a different type of outstretched hand, a hand raised not in anger, but a hand raised instead 
for attention. Think back to when you were at school. You know, putting your hand up uh, to get the teacher's attention. Sometimes the teacher would spot you straight away and ask you what it was you wanted. But other times, maybe it's just me, I don't know. But other times I find that the teacher would just uh, ignore me for ages and ages and ages whilst I had my hand raised. Now, in the 21st century, you might say that God has his hand up. God is signaling for attention, yet he is being ignored for ages and ages and ages by so many in our society today. But you know, the reality is that actually, wind the clock back to William Wilberforce's time, actually, he had exactly the same view of society back then at the end of the 18th century. God is forgotten, he wrote in his book that was published in 1797. God is forgotten His hand is lifted up, but we see it not. Wilberforce is saying, God, God is like the child with his hand raised, but us humans are like the teacher who's fallen fast asleep. The world is spiritually asleep, and God is forgotten. And really the question comes as to how that problem can be solved. You know, a revival is needed, a reawakening from society's spiritual slumber. That's what's needed now, just as was needed back in Wilberforce's day. Uh, Christian band, Casting Crowns, they wrote a song called Start Right Here in 2018. And, And it begins like this. They sing, we want our coffee in the lobby. We watch our worship on a screen. We've got a rock star preacher who won't wake us from our dreams. We want our blessings in our pockets. We keep our missions overseas. But for the hurting in our cities, would we even cross the street? But we want to see the heart set free and the tyrants kneel. The walls fall down and our land be healed. But church, if we want to see a change in the world out there, it's got to start right here. It's got to start right now. And the reality is, that the primary way that God has chosen for this world to be awakened from its spiritual slumber is not through rock star preachers, as rock star as Jamie Mulvaney is. It is not through worship on a screen or even coffee in the lobby. But to see change in the world out there, casting crowns are right. It's got to start right here, right now, with us, with you and with me. But what does that actually look like? What does it look like? Uh, Let me give you, I've been doing this over the last couple of weeks. I've been giving you a few quotes from Wilberforce's prayer journal. It's fascinating to see what he prayed about. Uh, And I'm going to show you one of the most frequent prayers that Wilberforce prayed. He prayed it again and again and again. I'm going to give you four examples of when he prayed this. uh, uh, But I could have given you millions of other ones. He prays this. Here's the first one, age 33. It was on Easter Sunday um, in Clapham. And he prayed this. Oh, protect me from the wiles of Satan and the corruptions of my own heart. And may I yet live to experience in myself the efficacy of thy renewing grace and to adorn in the sight of others the gospel of God, my Savior in all things. Or five years later, age 37, he prayed, Oh, may I be humble and diligent and grateful and self-denying, striving continually to love God more, serve him more entirely, and adorn the doctrine of God, my Savior in all things. Or age 50, By this stage, the abolition of the slave trade had been passed, and what does he pray? Oh God, I fly through the Savior. Enable me to live more worthy of my holy calling, to be more useful and efficient, that my time may not be frittered away unprofitably to myself and others, but that I really may be of use in my generation and adorn the doctrine of God, 
my Savior. Or age 58, and alas, even till now, how little progress, how little of the divine nature, how little spirituality, either in heart or life, how little of a due adorning of the doctrine of God, my Savior. Now, hopefully you get the point. The origin of that phrase, to adorn the doctrine of God, my Savior, it's from our reading today. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, we know that Paul provides the sort of the principles that undermine the very concept of slavery. But in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, those two verses that Chloe read for us, what Paul does is he unpacks how slaves who made up half of the working population of the Roman world, how they should live while still a slave. And what does he say to them? He encourages them not to steal from their masters, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Or in the NIV translation, as we heard, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now that adorn word, it's not perhaps a word that we use loads. What does it mean? In ancient Greek, uh, the word for adorn is the word cosmeo, uh, which is a sort of verb form of cosmos, which uh, obviously we get the words cosmos uh, or world. Uh, In fact, the idea behind that Greek word is that it's sort of the orderly, harmonious arrangement of the world. You might say that the word cosmeo is pointing to the world's integrity. You know, think of Psalm 19, that famous psalm. Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, The skies proclaim the works of his hands. And it's the same idea with this cosmeo word. Someone might look at the world, maybe some here. Maybe that's what's happened to you in terms of your uh, your trajectory to come into faith in Jesus. You might look at the world. You might see its orderly arrangement, how it's been created, how it's been put together with such integrity. And from looking at the world, you understand that the cosmos, the world, points to the glory of its creator, God. You see, just as the world, in its integrity, is an adornment pointing towards God, its creator, the point of this verse, Titus 2, verse 10, is that each one of us, every single one of you here, each one of us in our integrity, we are to be an adornment pointing towards God, our creator. You know, Jago's life declares the glory of God. Michelle's life proclaims the work of God's hands. Or or let me give you another image. Often in ancient Greek, this word cosmeo, it was used not just of the orderly arrangement of the world, but it was also used of the orderly arrangement of beautiful jewels on a person. You know, the jewels were an adornment highlighting the beauty and the majesty of the person. This year, as we all know, is the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years since her coronation. And uh, when Certainly, and when we get to June, we'll see loads and loads of pictures of this, but I'm sure you've seen pictures before. Uh, The queen, at her coronation, she wore plenty of jewels. There was the the coronation necklace, uh, which had 26 huge diamonds in it, the biggest being a whopping 22-carat diamond. Uh, There was her coronation crown, you'll see there, which has over 3,000 jewels in it, apparently, and as spectacular as all those jewels were to look at. Everyone watching wasn't supposed primarily to declare the magnificence of the jewels, were they? But rather the magnificence of the queen whom the jewels adorned. You see, jewels adorn someone to bring attention to them. And in Titus 2, verse 10, we, you and I, we're the jewels. And Jesus, he is the person who our lives are to adorn. 
Our consistent life of integrity, it is to point to the magnificence of the God who saved us. You see, there's God. He's got his hand raised. He's saying, I'm here. And God's chosen means of attracting attention, of getting the world to recognize him, his chosen means is by you and me being people of integrity, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, what does that actually look like? I'd love you just to sort of join with me, if you would, and just in a little, a little thought experiment, okay? So what I want you to do is just let your imagination run wild with me, just for a moment. Imagine, you are the kindest, the most impressive person in your workplace or your university or, or wherever it is that you spend most of your time. You are the most impressive person. And some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I mean, big, big deal, that's me. Good for you. Most of us were probably not thinking that. But just imagine, just for a moment, that you are so magnificent that those around you, they hate it when you go on holiday because they love your friendship so much they can't cope without you. Uh, as well as uh, all you do in your job, people always come to you whenever they've got a problem, be it personal or professional. Uh, you've always got time for them. You've never have a crossword with them. They respect you for the person you are and the things you do. Very simply, you have become a living legend. Okay? That is you. You're the living legend. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Are you adorning the doctrine of God your Savior? Answer, not necessarily. Not necessarily, because if nobody knows you're a Christian, if no one knows why you're such a great person, then really your wonderful lifestyle, it's going to glorify you, not God, isn't it? You are adorning yourself. So head back to our thought experiment. We're going to change it slightly this time. Okay, you're still a living legend. You'll be glad to hear. You are the, the greatest, most lovable person in your workplace or wherever it is. Does it adorn the doctrine of God your Savior if now you're a living legend but also people know that you're a Christian. Does it now adorn the doctrine of God your Savior? Do you? Answer? Still not necessarily. Just think about it. What, what conclusion will people come to if they know you're a Christian and you live this awesome moral lifestyle, but that's all that they know about you? If those are the only two things they know, that you, they see you as a living legend and they know you're a Christian, what they're going to assume is that the Christian gospel is be good, be moral, be kind, so that you can earn your way to heaven. And of course, we know that that is the very opposite of the gospel. It's exactly what William Wilberforce was fighting so hard to make clear when he wrote his book on real Christianity. The gospel is not about us trying to meet a certain standard of goodness. It's acknowledging that we cannot meet God's perfect standards and ask instead our Savior to rescue us from our sin. If you just look again at the phrase Paul writes, what does he write? He encourages us, each one of us, in every way to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's not just that our lives are to adorn God, but that our lives are to adorn the doctrine, the teaching about a God who is Savior. People around us need to not just see the legendary kindness of us, but they need to learn about the legend who saved us. 
They need to know that that though we have all rejected God, we, we rightly deserve God's judgment. God in love has come and done something about it for each one of us in the most loving act ever. Our Savior has died on a cross for us. A couple of months ago, I was handed this um, small, rather moldy book. Uh, it was found in a sort of forgotten corner of this church. I won't tell you where. Um, but um, uh, it was, it's written in 1945, this book. And it's a book about Wilberforce and his friends. And it was written, as I say, 1945, just as World War II was coming to an end. And the Bishop of Litchfield, whoever he was at the time, has written the foreword to this book. And in it, what he does is he compares that, the current time he's writing, 1945, end of World War II, he compares that time with William Wilberforce's day. And this is what he writes. He writes this, a Napoleonic invasion of this island, Napoleon Bonaparte there in France uh, was likely to come and invade England. He says, a Napoleonic invasion of this island was every bit as probable in Wilberforce's time as the awaited Nazi invasion in 1940, so five years before he wrote it. But, he writes, busy with war work, just in the same way as ourselves, they, Wilberforce and his friends, they never thought of postponing their projects to quieter times. Then, as before in history, and there are some signs of the same thing today, a period of war and uncertainty, even of chaos, seems to provide not a less but a more favorable soil for fresh springings of the life of the Spirit. Now today, in 2022, war is suddenly all over our news, isn't it? No one quite knows how things will develop, even without the conflict in Ukraine. The global pandemic the last couple of years has certainly brought uncertainty and chaos in abundance. And we too, in the midst of all the mess, all the chaos, all the uncertainty in our world, we too could think of postponing our project of being people of integrity. Or... In the midst of the chaos, we could pray today that we, too, might be favorable soil for fresh springings of the life of the Holy Spirit. When Susanna and I, when we moved here to HDC uh, 10 years ago now, uh, we had uh, the great privilege of being prayed for and commissioned uh, by Justin Welby, the, the current Archbishop of Canterbury. It was a, at a large Christian conference, and after we'd sort of been prayed for on stage, as we got off stage, Justin Welby uh, took me and Susanna to one side, and he said to us, he said, as I was praying, I felt that God gave me a picture, God gave me an image. Uh, and he said the image was of streams of water flowing down from above into this church, and then the water in turn flowing out from this church in all directions across Clapham and throughout London. And he said, that water, that water, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. And that image, it's, it's stuck with us. It's something we've prayed into a lot as a church over the last decade. But I believe it's not just an, an image for us as a whole church. But actually that is an image for each one of us as individuals too. Because whoever you are, Whoever you are, whatever's going on in your life, if you look to Jesus and you ask him to empower you by his spirit to be a person of integrity, then those streams of living water that is his spirit, they will not just flow into you from above, but then they'll flow out from you into your daily life in all directions and all areas of your life. See, Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, they were a key part of a revival, a spiritual awakening in this country 200-odd years ago that as they lived lives of integrity, so they were used by God to be this means of waking people up from their spiritual uh, slumber. 
And you know, I pray very simply, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Wake people up today from their spiritual slumber. Now, I'm not one to to sort of get too hyped up about things, but it's been interesting to me uh, just to see a few pointers of these little sort of fresh springings of the Spirit taking place recently. Let me just uh, list a few. Uh, In in the last few weeks, a couple of people have have, um, told me independently this sense they have of just how the sort of outside in the, in the church grounds, the sort of spring flowers have been popping up through the church grounds. So, so this idea, this sort of sense of, the, of revival be, beginning, springings of the spirit, as it were, popping up. Another person told me how a, a few people in this church, just a couple of weeks ago, they've started meeting weekly to pray specifically for revival. Three or four weeks ago, someone brought me a whole sort of sheet of flip chart paper of lots of prophetic words and verses he'd been praying connected to revival. Uh, two people have shared uh, the same picture that they have, uh, they felt God's given them independently, uh, and they've, they've shared, both shared this picture of, of, of wells, uncapped, and starting to bubble up and flow with water. Now, I don't want to put too much weight on these things, that wouldn't be right, but maybe little stirrings pointing to revival, little stirrings of a reawakening of a spiritually slumbering world. And very simply, how does this reawakening come about? Not primarily through church planting, as important as church planting is. Not primarily through alpha courses, as vital as alpha courses are. Not even through rock star preachers and coffee in the lobby. Now, God's appointed means of rousing a sleeping world to turn to Jesus is you and me. You and me living lives of integrity where our lives point to the gospel and our lips speak of the gospel in every way that we are adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, as I close, um, I'd love you to think back, if you were here two weeks ago, to um, Isaiah chapter 6. And I mentioned Isaiah chapter 6 a, a couple of weeks ago because it's, it's where Isaiah, uh, you may well know it, Isaiah's there and he, he suddenly has a vision of God. Isaiah has this vision of God in all his majesty, all his greatness, all his hugeness. And, and Isaiah cries out. And he cries out, woe to me, I'm ruined. Literally what he cries out is, woe to me, I am disintegrated. And you know, always that is the case. When, we, when we, we recognize the greatness, the majesty of Jesus, actually what happens first, just as with William Wilberforce, is we recognize our need. We recognize our complete lack of integrity. We recognize that we, in so many different ways, we have disintegrated lives. And yet what happens at the very moment of disintegration, God, he comes and he begins a rebuilding work. God begins a, a reintegrating work for Isaiah. Up on the screen is going to come how it continues. Uh, This is Isaiah 6, verse 6. And Isaiah says this. Then what happened? There he is. He's on the floor saying, woe to me. I'm disintegrated. I'm ruined. And then verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, God's angelic attendants, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, and I said, here am I, 
send me. You see, as you look up at those verses, it's not just guilt removed, is it, for Isaiah? It's not just guilt removed, but it's also courage given. Here, this is Isaiah. He's been flat on the floor in fear, disintegrated. He's now reintegrated. And what's happening? He's sticking up his hand in answer to God's request to go out on mission. He says, here am I. Send me. Today, God has his hand up, doesn't he? God has his hand up signaling for attention. Attention from our spiritually slumbering world. God has his hand up signaling for attention. And the question for you and I is, do you have your hand up too? Do you have your hand up signaling not for attention, but rather do you have your hand up signaling your availability? Your availability to go out into the world to go out into your sphere of influence, wherever your sphere of influence may be, to go out into your work, into your local pub, into your sports team, into your street, into your block of flats, amongst your friends, to go out and live a life of integrity, adorning the doctrine of God, your Savior. That's the question for each one of us. It's so simple. In response to Jesus, Jesus who is the all-important one, Can I ask you tonight, are you saying, here am I, send me.